Tim Thorny isn't a household name, but perhaps he should be. The late singer-songwriter-producer worked with the likes of Alanis Morissette, Lisa Del Bello, Burton Cummings, Jimmy Rankin, and more. He also wrote some of the most memorable beer and car jingles, the type that got stuck in your head for days. He also won Daytime Emmy, Gemini, and Juno Awards. But it was his mentorship of and faith in the artists and musicians he worked with that truly defined him. During her induction into the Canadian Music Hall of Fame, Tim's dear friend Alanis Morissette described him as the ultimate port in a storm, one of a very few individuals who would simply hold space for you, but he was also a musical genius. In this special three-part series, we'll meet some of the people who knew Tim the best. On this first episode, we speak to Tim's younger brother, Tom, about watching him come to prominence as one of the most sought-after music producers in the business. Then we'll talk to Adam Fair, Tim's partner in Villa Sound, the studio where Tim would record his final album, Villa Freud. On that note, let's get started. Tom Thorny, welcome to The Essence of Cool. Thank you very much. Pleasure <laughs> being here, man. <laughs> yeah, it's good to see you. Um, it's been a little over a year since we lost Tim. Um, yeah. How are you and the rest of the family dealing with it? Well, it's been, um, uh, you know, as you know, Tim's a pretty big presence. Um, and he was a big presence in our family. Uh, so uh, very difficult. Um year or so i'm looking at a picture of him right now actually oh. so um actually i got this yeah there's this montage of three pictures right here on this fireplace so it's awesome mm. um it's because of the whole covid thing and uh and stuff it was really even more difficult because uh my mom couldn't really get closure my sister and i kind of you know through conversations with him and things like that and ongoing uh, things kind of had a little bit of closure and a little more understanding of what he was doing and why. Um, but my mom didn't. So on the anniversary, so on June 15th of this year, um, we went to the grave site uh, and he um, he's beside my dad. So it kind of is, is really cool. Uh, we had just the immediate family and Adam uh, there, and we kind of did a, a toast and a, a farewell and all that kind of stuff with some wild turkey, which was Timmy's uh, drink when he was when he was a bit of a drinker. He loved his wild turkey, mm -hmm. and so you know we had a bottle of wild turkey there. You know we all shared that and put a little bit on the gravesite. Um. But it's a uh, it's a loss in a really small family. So yeah, yeah. Take me back to the beginning, to the early days in Winnipeg. What was it like growing up with Tim? <laughs> well, he's six years older than me, and mm -hmm. so it was like having um, Timmy was like having sort of the big brother, but the big celebrity brother. Even like even before he was you know, kind of known for his music, like, let's say at 18, 19, 20 years old. So even when he was like 14, 15, he was still this musician, big, fiery, red-haired guy. And um, it was kind of cool. So if anything, you know, I had this, you know, that's Tim Thorny's little brother. You got to be careful. <laughs> right? <laughs> and so, so it was kind of good. And, um, and that kind of sort of, 
went through my almost my entire life uh, with Tim because uh, he was, you know, him and I were very tight. We were very, we were good friends forever. Um, and I think that's because of the six years he kind of went, you know, so there was no ever a competition thing. There was just, I have my little brother who is um, six years younger and I'm going to look after, make sure he's on the right track and does all the right things, you know, and then we did at, you know, as we grew up, that role somehow changed from time to time, depending on what we were talking about. (laughs) But yeah, having Timmy as a big brother now, what people don't know, Tim was a, uh, not only an outstanding musician, but when he was really young, he was a great athlete. So um, he had, uh, he had a hockey season. He played goal, which is beyond me why anyone would play goal, but (laughs) um, he played goal uh, in hockey and went and had an entire season without letting a goal. Wow. Yeah. So it was kind of, uh, and I think that's when he went, Oh, fuck it, man. I'm done. I don't need to do this anymore. I I think I hit the max. I'm not going to do any better. So that was sort of it. But, you know, we grew up with an athletic dad and, uh, so, you know, football, baseball, hockey, you know, pretty much anything is like, pick it up, try it. We all golfed. We did everything. So, um, it was, uh, growing up with him was awesome like he was a great big brother yeah through and through so lots of sports in the family in those early years what about music where did that come from growing up um on selkirk avenue in winnipeg uh they lived on top of a pool hall and my grandmother was a performer so a singer and a dancer and all that kind of stuff so uh and her sisters and stuff so i think from that more than anything uh and he just glammed on to the love of music. The Beatles were his thing when, you know, in the early sixties, when the Beatles came, that was all he could hear. That's all he wanted to do was watch the Beatles, and, yeah. you know, and then, and pick up an instrument and perform and all that kind of stuff. And in growing up in the family, he was always encouraged. You know, my mom was loved the fact that my brother was a musician. My dad loved the fact until he got a little bit older and went, you know, you need to get a job one day. And, <laughs> you know, so, so that kind of was uh, always a bit of a challenge, but he went, no, no, you just watch what I'm doing. Just stick with me, man. And he started so, playing around live at a fairly early age. I re- remember reading something. He was playing community clubs in and around Winnipeg from the age of 11. Yeah. 11, 12 years old. So he would, uh, we lived in East Kildonan, so there was a, a, a park called Bronx Park was sort of our, you know, uh, our community center, which was our hockey and our our baseball and football club would have been Bronx. And, uh, yeah, he would play live at 11 and 12 years old. And him and, you know, Frank Staff in Winnipeg, who lived down the street from us, was the bass player. And they had these bands, you know, and Staff's dad was a musician. Uh, so there was... Um, you know, a lot of uh, influence around him. So he would just constantly just, just loved what he was doing. Yeah. And I think he loved the fact that it gave him a little bit of uh, like status at that point. Was there kind of an, an aha moment for the family where at a certain point you just knew this was the path that he was going to follow for the rest of his life? For me, I would have been probably 
about 16, so he would have been 22, I would go see the Tim Thorny band in the bars illegally. <laughs> and uh, and so um, I was 16 going to see him. And, uh, you know, at the time, I think there was Mike Rowe, who was in Burton Cummings band. And um, he just there was always a slew of a different uh, cast of characters that would come and go. But I went, man, this is he's the real thing. I knew it then. I would say that's probably not when anybody else really got it. My, you know, I, I can't really speak for my sister, uh, but, you know, she was always in love with the fact Timmy was a musician and thought he was talented and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so that was always a given. Uh, my mom, sort of the same. Uh, my dad, less so <laughs> at that point. My dad was like, you know, you should get a job, you know, keep the music on the side, get a job. There was always a source of friction from that. Um yeah. But when I was about 16 and he was 22, I went, no, I think this is real. Mm -hmm. um, and then I guess probably in around, I would have been maybe 17, late, almost 18. No, I would have been 18 when he joined uh, the Lisa Del Bello band. Mm -hmm. um, and then that was sort of the kick for him. Staying in Winnipeg um, would have been probably problematic. Mm -hmm. Um but when he had the opportunity to come to Toronto and work with uh, Lisa and all the people surrounding her, mm -hmm. uh, it was pretty good. And I think that was, that was the catapult. And, uh, you know, sometimes you take it for granted that your brother is this guy and has this talent and all this kind of stuff. And you just kind of go, no, that's Timmy. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, it's, you know, yeah, sure. He's got talent and yeah, he's got this, he's my brother. So it's, I've known this my entire life. Hmm. Um, but when I really think, and when I delve into uh, who and what and all that kind of stuff, it's overwhelming at times. It's yeah. He was quite the talent. Now, before he gets to Toronto, I think it was around the time he was 22 or so is when I think Burton Cummings stepped into his life, correct? Cummings was always part. I think he, they knew each other mm -hmm. well before that. Tim, you know, did, and I guess maybe in 76, did a song dragging him down the line. Mm -hmm. um, and he had it on one of his albums, on one of Tim's albums and stuff like that. And Cummings loved the song and mm -hmm. he did it on, I think his of his greatest hits. One of his his uh, his albums, he uh, he did dragging him down the line. So that was sort of cool that. Uh, the, some you know some a nod from a fellow Winnipegger who's actually really made it, mm. um, and so you know that was that was a fun time. So. And no greater confirmation that yeah you've got talent and you're going to go someplace when somebody like that steps in and absolutely yeah. you know and they and they maintained their uh, their friendship through the years and and all that kind of stuff. So that was always nice. He does come to Toronto and he starts working with Lisa. 
And around that, now that's, I guess, she, was it she said that she started dragging him into uh, commercial sessions <laughs> and what, any vocal sessions, like anything that yes. must have had a profound effect on him. hundred percent, because, you know, again, you know, bottom line, we're just Winnipeggers, you know, and right. there's a difference between people from Winnipeg and people from Toronto. They're just this. And, you know, I'm asked, well, what do you, what do you, what is that? And I go, well, I can't really exactly put my finger on it, but there is a thing that goes, we tend to be a little more low key. Mm -hmm. We don't tend to get into people's faces and we just, you know, kind of lay in the weeds a little bit more than, than people in Toronto. Uh, and so it was, I think, sort of weird for him because he's got Lisa and taking him into these uh, sessions and going, you need to meet this guy. You need to, you know, you need to work with this guy. This guy, you should hear him sing. You should hear him play. You should, you, you got to understand how he can write and all this kind of stuff. And so it really did, you know, he played in the band and he toured and Lisa and Tim won the North American songwriting festival right. together. Um, that collaboration and everything was really, really good. And then he kind of, I think what worked for Tim in the advertising in the commercial world was the fact he could go into a back room and not have to be the guy front and center. Right. He was never really comfortable being a front and center guy, whether it's, you know, he was never totally comfortable on stage. Right. Uh, and so when he went, wow, I can write and I can perform and do all these things and I can stay in a back room and someone will just brief me and tell me what it is I need to do. This is this is cool. Yeah. While doing the commercial, he always did his album work, whether it was with the front or, you know, he wanted to produce other people's uh, projects and things like that. Or people were asking him to produce other uh, their projects. Mm -hmm. um, and so that gave him the other fuel that he required and needed. Uh, advertising was a, uh, a paycheck. Um, and then he could, uh, chase after his craft and, you know, and his real, what he really wanted to do was do the album work. Right. And successfully he did that. So. After they won the song contest, that's, I think, around that time that he sort of came into my view because uh, our mutual friend Jody Calero phoned him up and they connected. And that yeah. started, that really started his work in the advertising business in earnest, right? What happened after the uh, him winning the song writing contest with Lisa, he had hooked up with Mort Ross, you remember Mort Ross? No, I don't. So Mort Ross was sort of the jingle king uh, back in the 80s in Toronto. So, okay, right. And so Tim went and worked, uh, and there was a bunch of guys. Guido Luciani was there, uh, but Tim went to work with uh, Joel Feeney was there too. They had this little unique jingle business that they were doing, and this was prior to Jody. I think Jody was somewhere on. Davenport and he had a publishing company or something. Right. Right. Yeah. And then, so what had happened is this would have been about 85 and I went, Tim, Timmy calls me and said, Hey, can you come down? I want you to meet Mort and I want you to, you know, look at our space and do some stuff and let's talk. Right. 
So I was, you know, going, okay, sure. I was working for a, a guy. I followed my dad's advice and went in. <laughs> got a real job. I was in business. Yeah, I got a real job. It was shortly after that that Tim and Jody got together and formed the Einstein brothers. So yeah. Tim left Mort. That was sort of a weird thing. Because uh, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Jody went and worked with Mort as well for a very short period of time. Okay. Yeah. Now, I may be wrong, but I, that's what I kind of remember is Jody went there uh, for a short time, and then they decided to peel off because, you know, they were young guns, and, right. you know, Mort was an older dude and kind of set in his way, so it was time to move on. Um, and then so, yeah, and then Jody and Tim, who are both massive dreamers, mm-hmm. uh, they hit it off, and, you know, they had these visions and, you know, goals and things, so it was awesome. It was a really good they were really good for one another. Yeah. Jody called them the bad boys of the ad business. Uh, he said he said that they were really bratty and they just do whatever the hell they wanted. Much too All of the time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What was it? Yeah, we, we see um, TV series like Mad Men and you sort of get a sense, I suppose, even though it's fictionalized, of the real cutthroat uh, business that ad at the ad business is what was Tim like in those circumstances dealing with or, you know, ornery clients and intense sessions? <laughs> how, how did he deal with that stuff? So there's two different phases of it early on, Timmy would be brought in, you know, and basically to be the petulant writer. Right. And so when an ad guy would go, well, I'm, you know, I'm not really sure I, like this, or I'm not feeling that, you know, Tim would come in and do his, you know, you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. <laughs> right. And this is fucking awesome. And you're a fucking idiot if you don't like this. And so when you have somebody with the ability of speaking like that, and I don't know where it came from, but he, he had that all the time. Uh, so he would come in and do that. And the guy would kind of shrink and go, Yes, I should listen to what this guy's doing. Maybe it's not so bad. But, and it's between that and Jody, who also had this thing that goes, I I don't really give a fuck about you guys. I'm going to do kind of what I want to do. And if you don't like it, go somewhere else. Right. And so between the two of them, Jody was maybe a little more diplomatic about it uh, and was the guy in the room. Timmy would be brought into the room to kind of uh, reinforce the positioning of the music track. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think back in the eighties, the ad community kind of respected the passion for the craft and respected the passion from the individual who created that. That started to change in the nineties. And by the time you're in the two thousands, they had no, no respect for the craft. Right. And, and so that's when we decided we can't let Tim come into the room and say, you're a fucking idiot. Right. Because they would go, how dare this guy speak to us like that? You know, we're never, we're blackballing and the agency will never come to this place ever again, as long as we're in existence. So it was like, uh, it became a, a, a problem later. But where he was incredible was in the meetings prior to presenting music. 
So when guys were, you know, talking about what their vision was for a, a spot, um, he was incredible at, you know, taking in what they were saying and creating something different while incorporating their visions. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I remember him doing it once on a particular Pizza Hut job and it blew my job. Like I was, my mind was blown that he was able to sell through this idea. Right. Um, and it was, uh, you know, he was magic in a room. But, yeah. And so was Jody. Yeah. Both of those guys together in a room were like, they created magic. They were real good. Yeah. I want to look at, at that period, that sort of mid to late 80s. What were some of your favorite jingles that came out of that time? Uh, well, he had, um, the, you know, they did the Bud stuff back then. Bud stuff was always good. Mm -hmm. Labatt, like anything, like, because they did a lot of Labatt work. So a lot of that, the beer stuff was great. You know, one that sticks out is the schooner beer. I don't know if you remember schooner beer. Oh, I do. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that one sticks out all the time to me. Um, they, they did like a ton of GM work back in the 80s, man. This was a long time ago. <laughs> so. Tell me about uh, when Tim first started hiring Alanis Morissette. It's like rain. What had happened was Alanis, they had met um, in Toronto. So this would have been just before, you know, Jagged Little Kip Pill, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so a lot of the work had been done, but he had met her. There was a connection. They decided to start writing together and they wrote, you know, a few songs. I always joke about uh, there was Jagged Little Pill was 12 songs. Mm -hmm. And there was supposed to be 14 songs on it. Oh. Two were written by Tim and Alanis. Uh, and the other 12 were Ballard and Alanis. Right. The two by Tim and, Al and Alanis were cut. <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> by, Mr. Um, Ballard, by Mr. Ballard, perhaps? <laughs> it, exactly. And so that's sort of the, uh, that was really the, underpinning of their relationship was uh you know I, I think there was some communication before and um i don't know of her him hiring her for a voiceover i, I really don't know that mm -hmm. uh but knowing tim yeah because he mm -hmm. had he always had this way of kind of going you know let's i'm gonna try this thing right. nobody knows him nobody knows her let's hire them and see what we can make and see what we can turn that into. Um, and so, uh, and again, being a Winnipegger and private, you know, he didn't talk a lot about certain things. Right. But I know the relationship was really bonded through the writing process right. and it just continued. So much so that after Jagged Little Pill blew up and she went on mm -hmm. a world tour, came back and was disillusioned with everything, she sought him out. You tell me so, about that. Yeah, that's exactly right. So she was um, completely burnt out. 
when you say disillusioned, she didn't even know that she wanted to be in the music business anymore. Wow. Yeah. And kind of went like, cause it was so overwhelming and you could only imagine that, you know, she was young and, uh, that type of pressure, that type of money, that type of, you know, everything coming at you. Um, so she kind of went, but I can't go anywhere and hide because everybody knows me. Right. So we had our studio on Eastern Avenue, Eastern and Logan, mm-hmm. and we had built a, a bunker basically upstairs. It was where Tim lived for a couple of years. And then afterwards, we just kind of had it as a hangout space. Um, it was really private because it was upstairs from the studios. Mm-hmm. And um, and so we said, you know, Alanis, why don't you come stay here? You know, you can just do like just stay upstairs during the day, do whatever you want at night. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it took some time. You know, I'm sure it was a few months had gone by where she basically, you know, Nobody, nobody during the day saw her. Mm-hmm. Nobody. Some of the engineers that would be around at night, they would see her, um, you know, if she'd come down to grab something or do whatever. Uh, and then as she got comfortable and more wanting to kind of get, get creative again, uh, we had a couple of our engineers just basically set up the room. We would put a bunch of candles out. We spent thousands of dollars on candles. Uh, and we had our grand in the, on the main floor. Um, we would mic the room. We would have the, uh, the guys just kind of sit there and record. And she would play for hours and hours, kind of a state of consciousness. And we recorded, I, as a matter of fact, just sent all those tapes to Alanis, uh, maybe six months ago, because I had them all in my in my basement (laughs) and and so i kind of went it was one of those things i went i you know i got to get these to alanis you know i had them for tim but tim's not here so these need to go to her uh and it was just a stream of consciousness for like hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of music that we had recorded for her and then she kind of found herself again and her and tim worked together and uh created some stuff and it was it was like it was magical didn't have the same uh you know let's say notoriety as the jagged little pill but they were great albums yeah and uh and successful albums and he loved like he loved alanis loved working with her loved to go visit her loved it like there was just a special bond there yeah afraid to die the more afraid to live But why don't you ask yourself Why don't you tell yourself you to talk about that final year uh, 2021 and how was he dealing with his illness and how was the family dealing things just progressively were getting a little worse for him um you know he, he tim was also diabetic um and so he had some foot issues and so he kind of I, I still remember the call he goes my fucking foot's turning black 
And I'm going, man, like, what are you talking about? He goes, well, I'm a fucking guy. I got to go to the fucking hospital. And, you know, it was, I was a half an hour on the phone with him going, you know, I, he's saying, I, I don't think I want to do this anymore. And I'm going, what are you talking about? Um, and he's going, I, I can't. I can't fucking live my life around going to the hospital three times a week for four hours, you know, sometimes fucking crashing and nearly dying. I can't deal with this diabetic stuff. I can't, I'm, I'm just done. I can't. And I'm said to him, no, you can't do that, man. Like we'll fight this together. Him and Rachel um, were married 30 some odd years ago and uh, split, but remain incredible friends, even living together for the last kind of five or six years. Rachel was a rock, solid rock for him. So Rachel was going to take him to the hospital uh, to kind of have his foot looked at. I think they were sent off to Aurelia, you know, again, because of the COVID thing and all that stuff. So um, he called and said, like, for me, because I I'm, I was the liaison to the rest of the family for the most part, mm-hmm. Um uh, again, we're really small. It's just my sister, my mom, and myself. We don't. We have cousins really distant that are far away, mm-hmm. uh, and that's really it. Like an incredibly small family. Um, yeah. And so he called and said, "Listen, I'm I'm going to. Uh, I'm just I'm going to do this." And I kind of said, "No, fuck, you can't do that. You you know we're going to find a way." Um, one of the things that was supposed to happen was Rachel was going to be uh, his donor. Mm-hmm. And so for a year or so, we thought Rachel was going to be the donor for, for Tim. And then it turned out that, you know, yeah, although they're a match, she couldn't, uh, she couldn't be uh, a donor. Uh, there were some heart issues and then they were questioning whether he was able to kind of deal with it. Um, because of his heart he had massively high blood pressure at mm. one point in his life and so they just want kind of went you know it's 66 years old this maybe isn't the the greatest of ideas and so he just was starting to lose his will to kind of continue he was going to get the dialysis mach- machine for home that created a bunch of uh nightmare he was excited as shit about getting this dialysis machine for home um, and then it turned out now he's going to have to spend 10,000 bucks to do this and that, and do all these things. And he just kind of went, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this to my house. I don't want to, you know, you know, I don't want to crash. What happens if I crash here? Uh, I don't want to leave that to Rachel to have to deal with and all that kind of stuff. <clears throat> and so after my kind of going, now we'll find a way, man, we'll find a way. He called my sister and said, Susie, you got to talk to Tommy and go. Uh, you know, tell him why I'm thinking like this and why I'm, you know, doing this. Um, so I called him the next day and said, listen, I talked to Susie and, you know, as hard as this is for me, I'm going to support you on this, um, journey. So you tell me what you need from me, how and when, and all that kind of stuff. Um, so he did, he just said, I'll, I'll kind of let you know as it progresses, progresses and you know, exactly how I'm going to deal with it. So, you know, we decided to, to not say anything to my mom 
until he really finalized his, you know, this is what I'm doing. Um, so he made the decision, finally made the decision. Now I'm taking myself off dialysis and I am going to let nature take its course. They'll monitor my pain and do all that kind of stuff. Um, and so once he made that decision and we knew what the final dialysis state, which was the Thursday, um, so he went in for his dialysis, came out, got comfortable at home. That day we went and told my mom. Uh, I'm so sorry. John. What he was doing. And, you know, that was tough for her. Uh, it was really tough on us, but it was really tough on her. You're never supposed to bury a child, right? Yeah. So um, uh, we just explained that my sister and I just explained to my mom that, you know, it's just he feels it's time. He doesn't want to deal with this anymore. It's too much pain, too much anguish. And so she, um, I guess sort of understood uh my mom had a stroke about 12 years ago and her speech is terrible and so you know she has a hard time communicating some of her feelings and emotions so we had to kind of decipher but it was you know seeing my mom cry is really tough so we went through that um and then timmy being timmy uh had his way of of wanting to deal with things so he said i'm only seeing certain people uh before i go and he said i would rather keep it really limited so uh he had me and my sister uh and my mom and my wife tracy um went to go visit him on the friday he was a little more coherent and, you know, that was his best day. Um, he was kind of coherent and uh, could talk and laugh. And it was typical Timmy being, <laughs> and, uh, you know, cause Timmy had this weird thing and he'd go, you know, don't fucking sit there. Don't fucking sit over there. And so, you know, he was still that like, even like in that final, like, couple of days he still had that um timmy thing going on and so you know we visited with him for about an hour i took my mom and Susie and said to them you this is the last time you're seeing timmy he's not going to see you guys again yeah. so say your goodbyes right so they did i took them home we sat around uh for a uh, an hour or two reminiscing and thinking and and doing all that kind of stuff uh but uh it, it was tough because at first i thought i said you know you i'll just come with Susie, my sister and my, and my mom and he goes well, well you got to bring tracy man you know tracy's my wife so she i went yeah okay you sure because i want to make sure that i don't and he loves her so like he loved tracy a ton so the uh, the four of us went back to my mom's. They lived only about three minutes away from one another. Um, and so we just reminisced for a couple hours. He then saw a couple more people on uh, the next day. I think he saw 
um, I can't remember who, I think only one more person, I think, came up to see him. He was going to see some others, and he just didn't feel like it. I think he was going to see Zayak and try to rectify the the bad blood between them, and he just changed his mind when I don't want to fucking bother. Yeah. Um, uh, and then I was told by Rachel that he wanted me to come the next day. Uh, so I went to see him on f- the Sunday morning and he was, uh, really loopy at that point because the pain meds were f- full force and he was in pain. So he would come, he was just sat in his chair. Uh, he had this great chair in his room set up for this. Um, and he just, uh, you know, we'd laugh and shoot the shit. The next thing you know, you'd be talking about something. I go, I have no fucking idea what you're talking about, Matt. <laughs> and then, so he'd be coming in and out and in and out. Um, and then he goes, Tommy, I, in, in my closet, there's a shirt. Can you go grab that shirt? And I went, okay, which one? So he has a John Lennon shirt, crazy John Lennon button up shirt. Um, and I went, this one, he goes, yeah, yes, I want you to have that. I went, sure. Okay, man, I'll take that. And so I took the shirt and, you know, he never wore the shirt. I think he maybe wore it once, right? Because we're not built for, you know, wearing button up shirts for the most part as a thorny (laughs) word tend to be a little larger than most people. So button up shirts are a little too snug and dressy for us. (laughs) Um, so I took the shirt and I have it, I have it in my closet and it's all, it sits there. And I, I, I was going to wear it to the, um, gravesite that day, but, uh, I, I, I chose not to wear it just cause it would have been, it would have been too hard. Was, there was enough hard going on. And so, yeah. uh, so I went from, uh, that Sunday morning when I saw Tim for the, the last time and spoke with him, I went straight to my mom's met with my sister and my mom again to kind of go through kind of where he's at and say, you know, basically it's going to be like soon. And it was the Tuesday morning. So it was like 36 hours later that, uh, he had, he had passed out, passed away. And, um, it was fucking horrible. It was really fucking horrible. We got the message from Rachel early, uh, that morning saying Tim has passed, but you know, The one thing that I have to say about it all is that Timmy like lived his life his way. Yeah. And he died his way. Yeah. You know, he died under his, you know, um, this is the way I want to die. I want to go out being Tim Thorny. I want to make a bunch of fucking noise and go out like that. I'm doing it myself. I'm not going to just wither away and die and, three years from now of this horrible fucking disease that I have, I'm just going to take care of it. Now sent is, um, you know, as you saw on his Facebook, his Facebook post going basically see ya. Yeah. <laughs> and so he did it his way. It yeah. really hard as a family to, <clears throat> to absorb that and go, okay, it's, you know, but it's about Tim, you know, it, no one knew the pain and the discomfort and the shit and agony that he was going through. Uh, only he knew. And so this was his decision, his choice and had to be supported. And, uh, 
I think we're all now, we miss the shit out of him. Um, miss his energy, miss his fucking craziness and you know, the random things he'd come up with and say. Uh, but it was his decision and he went his way. And I think that I, I have to applaud that. Yeah. You know, so. What is the one thing you will miss the most about your brother? Oh, man. It's his energy. Um, <laughs> like I can look at these pictures right now across from me. And I feel it, you know. Yeah. I can drive by his house where Rachel still lives. And I can feel. <sighs> Sorry, man. No, no, don't apologize. <clears throat> his energy was huge. He'd walk into a room and like, I, I swear to God, you could send Timmy into a room with 500 people and every single person is going to go, wow, something just changed in this room. Yeah. And they would all turn and go, that's what we're changing. <laughs> that's what's got our fucking uh, attention is this guy who has got his unique look and unique presence and everything. He was magic. My brother was fucking magic. Yeah. So. Yeah. Larger than life. Yeah, man. What's the one thing you would like people to remember about Tim? Um, man, there are so many people that think of my brother as uh, like tough and gruff and, uh, you know, hard to understand and get to know. And that could be like, that's couldn't be further from the truth. Right. He was as transparent as anybody. It's just, if he liked you and cared for you and had time for you, well, then you were going to get the attention. You're going to get the, the love back that from him. Like he was, he was awesome. I, I want them to remember his energy and remember the gifts uh, that he's given us both in, from a creative aspect and from a personal aspect because he was a special guy. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you, Ben. Adam Fair, welcome to The Essence of Cool. Thank you for having me. Yeah. It's a real pleasure to talk to you. How, how did you first meet Tim? So the first time I met Tim, I was, uh, I was interning at a studio in Toronto called Phase One Studios. This was back in, I think, 2009. And Tim was just working there um, like anybody else. We had clients all the time. And Tim was there working on an album for Alex J. Robinson. And I was just, uh, like I said, I was just an intern and I was mostly hanging out at the front area and uh, I wasn't on the session that Tim was on, but from time to time he would come up to the front just to like go have a quick smoke or something outside and, and I would talk to him a little bit and that was kind of it, nothing, nothing crazy. What was your first impression of him on that meeting? 
Well, I mean, immediately I thought he was a pretty interesting guy. I thought he was pretty cool. I mean, he he would show up every day with like uh, his bulldog Bob and like his uh, he drove at the time a convertible Mercedes and he would just like I was like who is this guy? Like he would like roll up to the studio in a convertible Mercedes with like this bulldog next to him and he'd be wearing like a bandana and stuff and it was like you know just like an interesting character sort of right out the gate. And uh, he was interesting to talk to. I don't even remember what we were talking about specifically at the time, but, you know, like he would just come to the front and I would just talk to him and, and, uh, and then he would go back into the studio or whatever. And so our first meeting wasn't really anything. He probably wouldn't even remember that, you know, mm-hmm. but uh, that was the first time I ever met him. How did you start working together? So we had a mutual friend uh, who also uh, worked at that studio and she had told her, her name was Dragisa. And she had told me that Tim was looking for somebody to help him put together like a home studio setup because he had recently sold his studio uh, in Toronto, which was Tattoo. Mm-hmm. And he was starting some new, uh, which that's why he was at phase one, I guess, because he didn't have his studio anymore. So he was starting some new projects or had some new projects coming up and he wanted to do some like pre-production and writing and stuff. Uh, and he was just going to do it out of his apartment. And he didn't have anything at the time, like nothing. He didn't have a computer or microphones, like nothing. So he needed somebody to help him uh, get some of that stuff and set it up. And our friend kind of mentioned that to me. And then I was like, well, you know, let him know that I'd be happy to help him out if he needs a hand. And she she sort of made the introduction. And then I went to his place one day in uh, Forest Hill. We met at the Starbucks across from his apartment and yeah, we just, he told me what he needed. And for whatever reason, he just like trusted me right away. And I went out and I acquired a bunch of gear for him. And then, uh, he asked me if I could set it up for him and I was like, sure. And then he was like, can you run this stuff? And I was like, yeah. And then (laughs) it just sort of kept going. And he was like, well, you know, maybe you can stay and help me record some of these demos that I need to do. And sort of just one thing led to the other. And I just kept going to his place because he kept asking me to come. Next thing I knew, we were working on stuff together on a pretty regular basis. And for the most part in that period, you were working on Tim's demos. You weren't working on other clients or other artists. So at that point in time, he was writing with this um, this girl from Argentina whose name's Anna Aguilar. And she was staying with him at the time And they were just kind of like writing together. And I think they were writing, they were just friends. And I think they were writing for Tim's solo record. And, uh, and then that kind of turned into her. She had never actually sang anything herself before, but she was, she was a writer. And then that turned into him wanting or her wanting to record some of her own music, I guess. And he was encouraging. So, so it turned into us doing her songs first so so we actually were demoing anna's songs and then we ended up producing two or three songs for anna and simultaneously we were demoing songs for tim's album which became uh the villa freud album right Right. yeah what were your first impressions of him as a producer working with an artist like anna well that was all really new to me because i was pretty young at the time i had never worked on anything like that it was very uh like Indian based, like it was all like tablas and uh, just had like a really Indian vibe. Anna was from Argentina, but she was really inspired by like the Indian culture and stuff. It was all it was all English language, but just the instrumentation and stuff was was like that. And uh, and 
yeah, it was really, it was like a whole new thing for me. And Tim, Tim's, uh, like, uh, writing and stuff was different than anything I had worked. It's it sort of like more sophisticated. Like I was coming out of working with friends and stuff who were, you know, early twenties and stuff like that. We were writing like, or I was, I was writing, but they were writing like pop songs and we were, you know, in indie rock and stuff like that. And then all of a sudden I was in the studio with Tim and it was much more sophisticated songs and, and with, you know, world instruments and, and all this kind of stuff. So it was really cool for me. I found it exciting and, uh, and every day was like just really interesting. So how in, in terms of being sophisticated, apart from the world instrument, world music instruments that were being used, how did that sophistication manifest itself? What were some of the things about it that caught your ear? It was just the complexity of the songwriting. Like he was using, you know, like different tunings and stuff. Like this is all like kind of new to me at the time. Mm -hmm. He was uh, really experimenting with the tunings that he was using. Like he would basically never use like a standard guitar tuning. Uh, he would all, every song was like a different tuning, uh, different like capo positions. He would really play around with chord inversions, like all just kind of stuff that was like new to me. Like I was, like I said, it was all like, simple stuff that I was working on kind of prior to that. Um, and I was just interning at that other studio as well previously. And, uh, so this was, yeah, sort of my first time working like with a really experienced, uh, songwriter, producer, musician. And, uh, that was just really cool for me. And it was like a whole new world. I thought that was pretty awesome. Yeah. And one of the things that's always fascinated me about Tim's, uh, work is that he can take a really simple sort of pop structure, like a, like a, a GCD, but he, it's what he does with that in and around that structure that makes it so unique. Tell me about, um, did, did he ever sort of verbalize his approach to songwriting? What, did he ever talk about sort of the manifestations of how he was changing something to make it you know, more interesting? specifically i can't i can't think of anything but i know like he he was really heavy on like the groove of a song you know like he all, a lot of it i think for him came from the groove uh so we'd often start with drums or like in this case it was like i was saying a lot of like indian stuff so it'd be like tablas and and all that kind of stuff and and once he sort of got that down uh that was the other thing with tim too like the way he would play acoustic was very like rhythmic and different like he would put all these elements together that on their own wouldn't seem like much, but, but, you know, once put together the, it would just sort of all like glue together really nicely. And um, yeah, he was really like, really, it was all about the groove with Tim and then obviously um, the melody and all that kind of stuff, but he was really like groove oriented. It was, yeah. I think something that I really picked up on. And, and I noticed that across like, anything like if he would do like a, a country a country thing or something like it would it would never be like that typical sort of thing that you would hear on on like the pop country radio or whatever like it would always have this sort of like tim thorny thing to it where uh just it was just the way he heard uh like the rhythm in his head you know and it would come through in like all the instruments mm. you had mentioned using the tabla um and uh, you, you and I had talked before offline about the fact that he'd laid, he had tablet laid down on all of the tracks that would eventually become Bill of Freud. Um, yeah. So it was originally going to be just kind of 
tabla as the main percussion. Why did he suddenly change his mind and bring in Randy <laughs> Cook to play drums? Um, so I think he, that was sort of like, he set that sort of rule, if you will, from the beginning, I think just to help him, you know, just to change it up a little bit. Like he'd obviously done so many projects in his life that he was like, I'm going to try to do this one without real drums, you know, I'm going to, cause we were just coming out of that Indian thing or we were actually in the middle of it. So that was his thing. So we were, it was tablas and all the other, I can't remember all the names of them, but there's all any sort of like Indian uh, percussion or drum is, was basically on all the songs. And, and like I was saying, the groove was his thing. So all those songs were kind of based on some type of like per percussion loops that we had put together. And then he would have played the guitar and, and sang on it. And that's how we were building all the tracks. And then we spent a long time on that album. Uh, I think because we paused to do Andrea Ramlo's album and there was like some other things that happened. So it remains with the Indian percussion alone for quite a while. And then I think it was maybe like close to a year later, we were at a different studio at this point in time. Uh, we were out of his apartment and we were at a studio in Toronto at King and Spadina. And for whatever reason, I think he just like one day came into the studio and was like, you know what, man, like, fuck it. Let's send one of these songs to Randy and see what happens. And I was like, all right. So uh, I think the first song we sent was free. I'm pretty sure that was the first one. And yeah, it just came back. And then Tim was like, oh, you know, like, it sounds so good. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then uh, he was like, fuck it, like send him another one or whatever. And then uh, it just kind of like happened like that. And I think at one point he was like, send them all or whatever, you know? And then, uh, <laughs> and then, so we had to like restructure. So that's why Randy was playing to these loops. And then I'm pretty sure that's the order that it went in. And then we had Ravi come in after uh, Tim had sort of, you know, eliminated his original concept. And uh, we had Ravi play to Randy's drums. Did Randy yeah. ever comment to you or Tim about working with the tableau? Yeah, I just know from working with Randy, I've worked with him a bunch of times, that he loves playing to loops. Like, right. it's like one of his favorite things. Um, he, he always asks me to leave in any percussion that I have, even if it's like a shaker. He's like, just leave it in. I love playing with it. So... Yeah, I think he really liked playing to all those loops for sure. And it, it obviously influences the way that he would have played. Um, so you otherwise end up with a maybe more, you still end up with that interesting uh, take on on sort of like a country song. Like if we had taken all the loops off and given it to Randy, he probably would have done something different. Right. Randy's the best. Yeah. The guy's a crazy drummer. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I've been following him since um, his his teen years when he was in a, a funk band called Phase Four with my friend Larry Bethune. And oh, nice. He, even back totally then. imagine. Oh, yeah. Even back then, you <laughs> knew he was going to be a, a world-class drummer. Um, how would you, to, if you're talking to somebody who didn't know anything about Tim, how would you describe him? Good question. Um, well, musically, I would say he's 
I mean, in my opinion, he's somewhat of like a, a genius, just like musically, like the way he looks, uh, the way he looks and hears music and stuff. It's just so different. Uh, he's obviously a very eccentric person, like very interesting, very knowledgeable. I mean, dude was like a human encyclopedia for music, like, yeah. and just like so enthusiastic about constantly learning like every time i would talk to tim it was something about music like he had just watched a documentary he was always reading books on music like he never ever got tired of it um so yeah just like a huge music enthusiast um and yeah just like an amazing person i mean obviously as i'm sure you know and, and everybody a lot of people know by now is how many people tim helped throughout his life and sort of guided their career paths and without even necessarily like consciously maybe knowing what he was doing all the time. Like, I don't know, but he just, he just had a way with people to sort of encourage them and give them confidence and, uh, and help them along the way, you know, and he did it time and time again. And there's so many people who are proof of that. So, yeah, yeah. he was incredibly intuitive and particularly yeah. about giving a sense of what another person is like, even, if he just met them, he seemed to have an intuition that this person, you are a prime example of that. I mean, he basically plucked you out of nowhere and, um, you yeah. know, and, <laughs> and it had this incredible faith in you. In fact, I, on that note, I just want to read something uh, from the FB post that you made uh, after Tim passed. Sure. <clears throat> you said he put an incredible amount of faith in me at a time when I was unsure of my own ability. He had no reason to do that. He had previously only worked with top guys in the industry. So why me all of a sudden? I never asked him. And that's how our relationship was. We never questioned anything. We both, uh, I think we both figured we would just keep going until it wasn't fun anymore, but only ever got better. How did it get better? In what ways? Oh, uh, many ways. I mean, just the, the, the friendship, uh, you know, our friendship grew over the years. Like it started off very professional, um, with me just sort of showing up to his house and, and I was sort of doing whatever he wanted me to do. And then, you know, we just became really close friends and we ended up, uh, producing stuff together. We were more of a team. We would, by the end, we were just friends. We would go out, get food together. We would hang out together. Like, you know, it was just like a normal friendship. Um, so that part of it was definitely, uh, an example we have, how it just kept getting better and better. And, um, and yeah, the studio itself too, like we, we never talked about, like, like I said, when I showed up to his place, he had nothing. I helped him get a couple things. And then over the next 10 years, we built this crazy studio. I mean, we had like an SSL console, like tons of mic priests, like it's like a full blown studio, you know? And we never really like said like, oh, we're going to build a studio. Like we just kept getting shit and like for whatever purpose, like whatever project we were on. And that was kind of how, how stuff always works. Like there was no like business agreement. Like no, there was like nothing. It was just really organic. Um, it was a really organic friendship and relationship. And uh, yeah, it was one of a kind, like. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if a lot of people get to get to have something like that in their life, you know? Yeah, really. But, uh, yeah. How did uh, the building of uh, Villa Sound come to be? Uh, well, like I just said, it wasn't really uh, planned out. So we, like, I could just break down for you how, how we ended up here. Um, we basically, the 
uh, we started at his apartment in Toronto and then he got evicted for noise because we were making, <laughs> we were like, we we're going nuts. Like we were recording guitars at like uh, 10 PM at night sometimes. And there was like neighbors, it was an apartment building in four right. in this kind of like, this kind of like bougie building in like forest Hill. <laughs> I think everybody <laughs> like low key, like didn't like us, you know? <laughs> and so uh, he got evicted and then we got a studio at uh, King and Spadina, which was wanted sound and pictures, like a production house. And then we had a little room there and then we sort of moved to a bigger room there. And then Tim suggested, or Tim wanted to move out of the city. Um, he, I guess he had just been there too long and he wanted to change it up and his family was up in Collingwood. So he said that he was going to move to Collingwood. This was in 2011, near the end of 2011. He said he was going to move to Collingwood. And he basically said to me like, you can stay in Toronto. Like we had that room at King and Spadina. Mm -hmm. He was like, you can stay in Toronto and you can work out of this room and I'll be less involved, but I'll still for, you know, once in a while, I'll come down and work on my projects. You can do your own thing. And then he was like, or it might be cool if we move the studio up to Collingwood and, um, you know, we could continue sort of working together and we could get a bigger, cause we always wanted to just keep getting bigger, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, we were kind of hitting a ceiling in Toronto just because of the prices and stuff. It was it was uh, too expensive to to upgrade another to another room or whatever. And um, yeah, so he suggested moving out to Collingwood. So we did. Uh, the original plan was to rent some type of unit in Collingwood. Uh, that didn't happen because it was also expensive. So we just put it in his house in the basement, um, and we were there for like. I think two years we were working out of his basement doing all kinds of stuff. And then I found this uh, place that I eventually bought with my wife, Ashley, which is where Villa Sound is now. It was an old general store in a town called Singhampton, which is about 20 minutes south of Collingwood. And it's like a 4,000 square foot, like century home built in the mid 1800s. Oh, wow. And so the main floor is where there used to be like a general store for a hundred years or so. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and then upstairs is where people would have lived. So, uh, the guy before us had already sort of converted the whole place into a house and then we bought it off of him and we turned the whole main floor of the building into the studio. So it's 2000 square feet, uh, is studio. And then my wife and I, and our, uh, daughter, Ashley and our dog, Louie live upstairs um, which is basically like a bungalow. It's wow. got like a full kitchen and everything upstairs. Yeah. And, uh, so that's how we sort of ended up, <laughs> you know, we just kept going like up, but it wasn't really a plan. It just sort of happened. Right. But that's pretty handy yeah. living upstairs and working downstairs. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty easy commute for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, a lot of producers, Phil Spector immediately leaps to mind, can be pretty he heavy handed in the studios, in studio, and bring in players and essentially tell the player exactly what to play. But Tim wasn't like that, was he? No, like so, sometimes he would, but I think most of the time he just wanted to sort of set a set of vibes, set an atmosphere, and then give. I mean, he would often work with players that he knew and, and sort of knew what to expect but he would give them their freedom and, uh, and then sort of react to how they were reacting. I think it, he would just say like, 
if, if he was going to tell them exactly what to do, that he would either just program it or like do it himself or something, you know, because he would often get uh, guitar players or something to play or, or keyboard players. And I mean, Tim was a guitar player and keyboard player. So yeah, he was really just looking for, you know, other people's uh, takes on stuff. And I think the way we were doing stuff a lot in the end, which I'm sure was different from how most of his career was, was we were like emailing tracks and getting them back and then dealing with them. So that was kind of neat because we wouldn't really give that much direction. We would just email them to the person and not really say much. Maybe he'd give them like a reference or something and then they would send stuff back and we would kind of work with it or, or chop it up or something like that. But no, he was, he would definitely like, let you kind of like, uh, do your own thing. And then he would, you know, comment or, or redirect a little bit if he thought it was necessary. Right. But, uh, yeah. but for the most part, he hired people, uh, because he knew what kind of take they were going to give him. Right. It wasn't so yeah. much. I want you to play this and that it was just be you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. By the end, I mean, he had like an, like an amazing, like Rolodex, if you will, of like all these amazing players that he had met over his, uh, throughout his life. And, um, so he always sort of had a, had a person for the job, uh, that he thought would be great, you know, and usually it was, and, and it was actually through that, that I met so many of these people. Like I now, I now have all these people as well for the most part. So whenever my clients need somebody like I, I tend to know a lot of uh, really talented and awesome musicians. Tell yeah. me a couple of the coolest uh, players you've worked with. Well, like I said, some of them were not actually like in person, right? So right. email back and forth. So um, so in that uh, context, we did a thing with uh, Elliot Randall, who played like on Reeling in the Years and stuff, but like all right. the Steely Dan, like he played that like, famous guitar solo that right. whole thing right and that was cool because i did talk to him on the phone with that one tim i don't think tim gave him any direction he just said like my engineer is going to contact you and then i talked to him on the phone for like 20 or 30 minutes pretty long conversation um and and then he did what he did and so that was that was pretty cool um we worked with brent mason on a couple different things it was like top call like nashville like number one dude right right um so that was pretty awesome brent played on most of tim's uh solo album actually mm-hmm. um randy cook i mean randy cook is like my favorite drummer you know he's <laughs> like, so great he's so yeah. great <laughs> so so great to work with and uh yeah he never lets me down yeah. for sure <laughs> and rick rick gratton who taught randy in fact was one of yeah. Tim's, Tim's fave players too, right? Yeah. So I actually knew Rick before I met Tim because I worked at that uh, studio and at phase one and Rick was often at phase one, mm-hmm. uh, just working on various projects. So I knew Rick before then, but yeah, I worked with Rick as well uh, with Tim. Rick's a psycho, like as a person and as a drummer, <laughs> <laughs> he's uh, he's amazing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm, yeah super lucky to have, to have worked with so many people, uh, and met so many amazing people. I mean, that's just a few, like, uh, there's a lot of different people that I've got to work with for sure. Of the in-person sessions, uh, that you've had, what were one or two of your favorite sessions and why? 
in person with another like yeah. session musician or artist or oh just any artist that yeah. we worked with yeah um well i really enjoyed working um well i really enjoyed that first thing we did with anna uh from argentina just because that was all really new to me um i just found it really interesting um that and it was my first time with tim so that was uh, that was a lot of fun um i did do I don't know if this counts, but I did go to Portland one time to work with Bob Ludwig when wow. he, yeah, when he, cause he mastered, he's mastered a few albums that I've, that I've recorded now, but I went one time and I think that was for Tim's album. So, I mean, that was pretty cool. <laughs> so I got to hang out with Bob Ludwig for a day. The man's a legend. Yeah. And sort of just uh, pick his brain a little bit and see his process and, uh, and all that kind of stuff. We did, we did a bunch of stuff with Eric Shankman as well uh from the spin doctors and that was always interesting he's a great guitar player and a fun fun guy to hang out with why do you think um artists sought tim out as a producer he was very different uh than what you know if they didn't want something sort of typical i think the way it would go with tim i think is is they would just be really good friends and he would start like he ne- he didn't really do so much stuff with like a person out of the blue, like a random person who would seek him out. It was more like nurtured relationships over years. And, and then they wouldn't eventually like do a record together. Uh, at least that's how it was by the time I came into the picture. Yeah. A good example of that, I guess would be uh, Alanis Morissette because he not only nurtured their relationship, but they started off uh, songwriting together as well. Yeah. Um, did uh, did he ever talk about working with Alanis? Yeah, a little bit from time to time. He would bring it up. Uh, I know that he, I think he told me that he first met her when she was like really young, like 14 or 15, but they didn't actually start working together until she was, I think, 18. Yeah. And I know that she lived with him at one point in time, I think above his studio, something like that. It was, right. I think it was after the Jagged Little Pill record. I'm not sure. It was after the tour, actually. Yeah. Uh, she was really, really worn out and uh, looking for uh, refuge, I think is what she said. Yeah. And she landed on Tim's doorstep. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, he told me about that. And I remember, yeah, they, they were just like hanging out and stuff. And then I think she started writing in his studio. And uh, and some of that eventually became the, the next album, which I mm-hmm. um, I don't think, I think Tim worked on the one after that. But that's right. Yeah. But that album was kind of like born in his studio during that period that he was that they were living uh in the same place as you're sitting there in the studio now what is it like working there without tim um i mean now i'm i'm more used to it than i was initially initially it was pretty it was it was weird it turned the 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 studio just became like it was previously like a place that i uh you know, it was like my favorite place to be. And I would always uh, be here working with Tim and stuff like that. And just for like the the month or so after it, it definitely had a different vibe about it. I didn't uh, kind of took a little bit of a break uh, just after after uh, Tim passed away um, just to sort of get my bearings again. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's amazing now. Like I, I love working here. I love knowing that like we built this place together. This is the the room that, you know, he would always like be sitting on over my left shoulder there. Uh, we'd always be working on stuff together in here. So uh, yeah, now it's great. Like I feel just 
this room is like a part of Tim. So it feels kind of like, I feel his presence here, like all the time. I have all of his equipment, like all of his guitars. He was, he just, uh, was, um, kind enough to kind of leave that stuff here. So, uh, yeah, he's very much alive in this, in this building. Like, you know, this is the sort of the world that he created and it's still, it's still here. And now I just feel lucky that I get to work here every day and then, uh, continue on like what we were doing before, you know? Do you still hear his voice in your head when you're in the middle of the session, maybe telling you, you know, do this, don't do that? That's funny. Uh, yeah, definitely. I heard that voice while he was still here, too. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, you know, you just get used to, I guess that's just the way it works. Uh, but yeah, like any mentor, like he, he taught me so much stuff over the years. And, um, and yeah, the, all of his sort of, uh, you know, whatever you want to call them, lessons or whatever, uh, they've all stuck with me and, and definitely I consciously am like aware of that. Sometimes if I think of something, I'm like, oh yeah, Tim would, you know, do this or do that or, or whatever. Yeah. It's definitely left an impact. And I, I think about it pretty frequently, I would say. Over the years of working with him, mm -hmm. what are you most proud of? Probably the project, his projects, the, the Villa Freud album. Cause that was, that was when I first, like that was early on, that was a sort of introduction to, uh, to all these great players and, and his sort of method. Like that was the first thing we started working on and it took like two years to completion. And, and, um, it was just, it was a crazy journey. Um, you know, that record. Of all of the artists that he'd worked with, who was he most excited to continue working with? I mean, he loved working with like Hill. Um, absolutely. He, uh, he loved Hill very much and spoke about her all the time. And any moment that he could, he would try to work with her on something. Um, Sarah Smith was another person that he loved working with. Uh, I mean, he, like I said, all, like all these people that we were working with were for the most part, like friends at, at this point, like he had, he had pretty solid relationships with all of them. So I think he was, uh, I think he was pretty excited about working with, with uh, everybody that he was working with at this point in his career, you know, cause I, I came on like near the end of his career. So by that point, I think he was done doing the stuff that he like didn't necessarily want to do anymore. And he was more just doing like whatever he was really interested in and, and actually wanted to be working on. I'm guessing he wasn't working on jingles at all with you. <laughs> no, we did. Uh, yeah, we did like a couple of things in the beginning. I think he was just wanting to introduce me to that world a little bit. Um, so in the very beginning, we did do some 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 jingles. But uh, yeah, we didn't do much of that stuff. Uh, it was really like a lot of his friends like Cassandra Bassick, you know, the Sarah Smith Hill. Um, Andrea Ramlow, we did like it was all uh, uh, Alana McMurtry. It was a lot of his like long time uh, friends or people that he had maybe worked with in the past, and and uh, we were doing more stuff together. So yeah, there was there was a few like sort of like clients sort of out of the blue, but uh, there wasn't too much of that. Are you working with Hill these days? Um, not so, not so much. I mean, I know that we've, we've talked, we talk all the time, Hill and I, and we have talked about, uh, you know, potentially like doing something together whenever it sort of makes sense. But, uh, I know she's, 
she's just so busy doing her thing and she, and she kind of takes care of most of the stuff herself. I think she's like producer, engineer, mixer, extraordinaire, you know, she's, yeah, <laughs> she's not, she does she's everything. an unstoppable <laughs> machine. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, she knows that I would love to work with her at uh, any point in time. And, and, uh, we've talked about it before and, and hopefully we'll do something in the future, but we'll see what happens. What's the one thing you would like people to remember about Tim? Just how amazing of a guy he was, you know, like he changed, like I said earlier, like he changed so many people's lives. Like, I don't think I would be sitting here today if it was for Tim, you know, I was just at a certain point in my life when I met him that I don't know, I don't know what I would have done, but I, I, I definitely know that he gave me like this boost to sort of carry on and now just, you know, I'm just not going to stop now. So he was, yeah, just like an incredible uh, mentor, friend. Um, one of the, like, everybody in their life should have a Tim, you know, the world to be a better place. Do you remember your last conversation with him before he passed? I think it was on the 13th and he passed on the 15th. I spent the last couple, the last couple of days just sort of like hanging out at his place. We weren't, uh, we were just kind of like sitting there like he was in his uh, at that time he was in his chair and I was sitting in a chair in front of him and we were just like chatting, you know, we were chatting about like gear and stuff. It was kind of funny. Like he was still like we would always just come back to that. We were talking about like Poltec EQs is like some random thing that <laughs> I remember as one of our last things we were talking about. We did have a moment to like say a couple things to each other, uh, which, of course, I won't ever forget. But uh but yeah, we were just talking about like it was very normal. We were just sitting in his room like we normally would, and we were talking about uh, we were talking about the the Beatles and like some of the stuff that was coming out soon for the Beatles, and we were talking about uh, gear. I'm not sure what the timeline was, but did he get to see the um, the three part uh, Beatles documentary before he passed? No, and it bugs me. <laughs> oh. yeah he didn't uh we talked about it though we did that was one of the things we were talking about and the um the other thing which or there was the rick rubin one which was rick rubin and mccartney and then the right and then the bigger one which was with uh the was get back or whatever right right yeah no he didn't get to see either of those which sucks because like oh. yeah that would have been uh his like favorite thing ever for sure what was it about the Beatles that he loved so much? I think it was the same thing that I loved about the Beatles. Um, they were like, obviously uh, great songwriters and stuff, uh, like no doubt. Uh, but I think it was also the recording side of the Beatles that Tim really liked, which is what I really liked. Um, just, you know, how it's like one of my favorite books, which I'm pretty sure was one of Tim's favorite books as well is uh here there and everywhere in my life recording the beatles by jeff emmerich who was the beatles engineer i think from was it revolver on yeah revolver on and just that book is like it just shows like how how involved the beatles were in in recording and recording technology and all that kind of stuff and that that's where tim's brain was you know like he was very much an enthusiast of like recording and not just uh like that's why he went to the studio you know like he said he quit playing live like a million years ago and it was all about the studio for him so i think that was the same with the beatles i mean they did the same thing they quit playing live and they just went into the studio 
yeah, they just had so much to do with the advancement of recording technology. And they obviously wrote amazing songs and produced incredible songs on top of that. So they were just the full package, you know, and we, Tim and I really like bonded on that. I think uh, right from the beginning, it was a, it was a constant throughout our entire relationship was uh, the throughout like 11 years straight. I think we talked about the Beatles, like, like maybe once a day, like they came up very frequently. Is there one thing you didn't say to Tim that you wished you'd had before he passed? You know, honestly, I almost didn't say it and I, and I said it to him before he passed. So I think I'm safe to say, like, I don't, like, I don't have any regrets about that. Um, I wanted to let him know like the impact that he had had on me and I wasn't, and I wasn't going to say anything. I wasn't really sure how to like approach it or whatever, but I did. And, and I'm glad that I did. And, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure he already knew, but you know, it was just nice. Thank you so much for being so candid and uh, telling us your side of Tim's story. We really appreciate that. Uh, no problem. Thank you for doing this. I'm happy that uh, people are going to be able to hear uh, about Tim's character and, and what kind of person he was, you know. Because I keep surrendering day by day. My heartfelt thanks to both Tom and Adam for sharing some deeply personal thoughts and reflections on Tim. On our next episode, we chat with two of Tim's favorite people, former Ringo Starr Alanis Morissette drummer Randy Cook and Juno award-winning engineer, producer, and songwriter Hill Korkutis, who give us some insight into Tim's magic in the studio and why he was so beloved. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay safe and please support independent artists. But someday I'll find her, I'll know what to say. I'll gain myself, then give it away.